If you have a Bible, turn with me please to Luke chapter 13. In the Church Bible, you'll find that on page 1046. (coughs) We've seen as we've been looking at this gospel, Jesus talks a lot about the kingdom of God. He sends his disciples to preach the kingdom of God. We've said in previous weeks that being in the kingdom basically means living under God's rule. And in our passage this morning, Jesus tells us and he shows us more about the kingdom. What it's like. What it's like to be in the kingdom. How we get into the kingdom. And also the cost of building the kingdom. Jesus deals with all of that. But in this passage, he also shows us the alternative. What is it like to be outside the kingdom? According to Jesus, outside the kingdom, there is only wasteland. Sooner or later, life outside the kingdom proves to be cold and dry and joyless. The exact opposite of life in the kingdom. So let's look at what Jesus says. First of all, in verses 10 to 17. The kingdom is a place of compassion. And deliverance from bondage, not a wasteland of callous religion. Look at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. The first recorded sermon we have from Jesus is back in chapter 4. Jesus stood up in his hometown synagogue and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That was Jesus' manifesto for his ministry on earth. And here we see him again in a synagogue. And what is he doing? Releasing the oppressed. This woman is both physically and spiritually oppressed. Verse 11 tells us she was crippled, bent over. And this physical ailment, we are told, is the result of spiritual oppression. That doesn't mean she was demon-possessed, but she is oppressed by a spirit. And this bondage she was in put her on the margins of life. Her days were spent looking at her feet. Her view of the world was severely restricted. And who would take the time to notice her? Who would care about a woman like this? Socially speaking, this woman has nothing to offer. Socially speaking, she's invisible. But not to Jesus. The kingdom Jesus is bringing is for people like this. Verse 12 says, Jesus saw her. 
She's bent to half the size of everybody else. But he notices her. He calls her forward. And he shows his power to deliver her. This is what it's like to come under the rule of the king. The kingdom is a place of compassion and deliverance from bondage. But not everyone is happy here in the synagogue. Look at verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work. So come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. As far as the synagogue ruler is concerned, healing is work. According to the traditions of the Jews, not the Old Testament law, but the traditions that grew up around the law, only life-threatening conditions could be dealt with on the Sabbath. And this woman is certainly not in that category. There's no doubt her healing could have waited until the next day. To this religious man and to many like him, preserving the traditions has become more important than seeing men and women delivered from their bondage. But look how Jesus responds, verse 15. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Jesus says, you care more about your animals than this lady. You wouldn't let them suffer thirst on the Sabbath. No, they're far too valuable to leave alone. You untie them on the Sabbath, but you're content for this woman to have another day of bondage and oppression. Hypocrites. The Jews looked back to Abraham as the father of their nation. And Jesus describes the woman in a way that's meant to make these leaders ashamed. Verse 16, she's a daughter of Abraham, Jesus says, but she's invisible to you. You care more about your ox or your donkey. In this passage, Jesus is showing us what his kingdom is like. And he's also showing us what it's like outside his kingdom. It's a wasteland. It's significant that this confrontation takes place in the synagogue, the religious center of the town. We've been shown, as we've been shown before in Luke's Gospel, that it's possible here to have a whole lot of religion but be outside the kingdom. The synagogue ruler and his friends would rather cling to their traditions than welcome the king. They would rather cling to their traditions than see this woman set free from her bondage. This synagogue is a wasteland of callous religion. Unfortunately, many people in England, and probably in Italy too, have seen plenty of callous religion. Plenty of religion that's all about preserving cherished traditions. 
They've seen the wasteland of churches that are just exclusive clubs. And tragically, many people think that's all there is to Christianity. But they haven't seen the kingdom. They haven't seen a fellowship of men and women where Jesus is the center. Where there is true compassion. Where men and women are being delivered from bondage by Jesus' power. So the challenge for us as a fellowship is this. In 10 years' time, will we be a fellowship where the kingdom can be seen? Where the socially invisible are welcomed and cared for? Where men and women are finding deliverance from their bondage to sin? Or will we be like so many other so-called churches that have been and gone? A wasteland. A slowly dying club where we care more about our traditions than we care about the king and his kingdom. And let's not fool ourselves when we talk about this. It's just as easy to be fixated on new methods and new ways of doing things. We can swap what the Jews called the traditions of the elders for the traditions of the younger. There are plenty of up-to-date churches where the king has no authority. There are plenty of up-to-date churches where you won't meet the king. There are plenty of up-to-date wastelands. Churches where there is no compassion for the old and the weak and the unattractive. We're just about halfway in Luke's Gospel. And from this point on, there is no record that Jesus ever spoke in a synagogue again. The king and the kingdom were not to be found in these houses of religion. Spiritually speaking, they were abandoned wastelands. But they carried on without the king. So let's make sure we're a fellowship where the king has authority where his word trumps our personal preferences, our cherished traditions, old or new. Let's make sure we're a fellowship where the kingdom is seen. Well, many of those who heard Jesus preaching would have had a problem when they heard him talk about the kingdom. Sure enough, they could see he had power. There was no doubt about that. But was this the kingdom? Calling a bent over lady from the shadows and straightening her up? Calling a few fishermen away from their boats and pouring months and months into teaching them and training them? This was not what the people had expected the kingdom to be. They expected thunder and lightning. A powerful kingdom that covered the whole earth. A kingdom that came decisively and unmistakably. But this, this was more like a sparkler than a rocket. This was more like a little shrub than a big towering tree. Could this really be the kingdom of God? And it's not surprising they thought this way. Listen to these words from the Old Testament. God is speaking through the prophet Ezekiel. 
This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. Everyone knew that prophecy. The kingdom would be like a splendid cedar on a high and lofty mountain. People and nations would flock to it like birds coming to a nesting place. But as the Jewish leaders looked at Jesus and his fishermen friends, as they watched Jesus delivering one broken person at a time, it didn't look much like a splendid cedar on a high and lofty mountain. Jesus knows very well what the people are thinking. He knows his kingdom doesn't look like the kingdom they expected. So look down to verse 18. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Again he said, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. Jesus says the kingdom is a growing, spreading shelter. He says it's true. My kingdom is coming without a fanfare, without fireworks in the sky. It's coming one person at a time. But don't be fooled by that. It might look like a little mustard seed in the beginning, but that doesn't mean it's going to amount to no more than a shrub. It will become like a towering tree, a shelter for all the nations. It will cover the whole earth, just like a little yeast eventually spreads through even a large amount of flour. Trust me, Jesus says, the end result will be what the Old Testament promised. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And sure enough, after Jesus died, rose, and returned to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to empower these fishermen. They carried the good news about Jesus all around the world. Today, tens of millions are in the kingdom. It's a shelter for men and women from all nations. And it continues to grow. But we can't see that too well here in England. We can't see it too well in Italy. We look at the kingdom in England and it often looks more like a shrub than a mighty towering tree, doesn't it? We may look at our streets and our cities and see only godless wasteland. And so we're called to trust Jesus' words. We're called to remember that the king is not finished building his kingdom. We may live in a time and place where evidence of the kingdom is small and humble. But the closing chapters of the Bible promise a new heaven and earth. A place where there's no need of the sun or moon. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. 
The kingdom will fill the new heaven and earth. And the kingdom will be full of a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. From our vantage point, the kingdom may look small and weak, just as it did here in Luke 13. But it's not going to stay small and weak. And that's our encouragement to keep serving the king and working for the spread of his kingdom, one delivered sinner at a time. And that leads us to Jesus' next point. In verses 22 to 30, the kingdom has a narrow and soon shut door. Look down to verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, We ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. What Jesus says here is in response to the question in verse 21. Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? And as he so often does, Jesus turns the question around. He says, in effect, don't worry about how many will be saved. Make sure you're among those who are saved. He illustrates the kingdom by talking about a house here. The owner of the house is Jesus. Look again at verse 24. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Make every effort does not mean try to work your way in by your own effort. In this context, the point is, make every effort to find out how to get in. This is a narrow door. You won't get in unless you pay attention to what I have to say. And not only does Jesus say the door to his kingdom is narrow, in verse 25 he says it isn't going to be open indefinitely. Last week Jesus introduced the idea of a feast as a way of describing the kingdom. We sang the song, the feast is ready to begin. A description of what life is going to be like in the kingdom. And next week Jesus will focus on the feast. But here the picture of the feast appears again with the message that when it begins there will be some who are locked outside unable to enter the kingdom forever shut out in the wasteland. Entering the kingdom according to Jesus is a matter of urgency. 
Jesus has said the door to the kingdom is narrow. And he explains what he means by narrow. Verse 26. The people who are locked out claim they deserve to be inside. They argue their case. They say to the king in verse 26, We ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. These people say, We know all about you, Jesus. We sat around tables and heard you speak. You've been to our village, for goodness sake. But they're not able to say they ever responded to him. They're not able to say they came to him as sinners, repenting of their sin and seeking forgiveness. Hell will be full of people who knew lots about Jesus. People who were around church and around the Bible. They mixed with God's people. But they never joined God's people. They never came and bowed before Jesus as their king. They never responded personally. Acknowledging their need and trusting Jesus to meet their need. The door to the kingdom is narrow because there's only one way to come through the door. We come in God's way or we don't come in at all. Jesus is the way God has provided. He's the only door to the kingdom. Or to put it another way, he's the only ladder up to heaven. Jesus knew his crowds very well. He knew the Jews assumed their Jewish birth would get them into God's kingdom. They were descendants of Abraham. Unless they committed some great blasphemy, they'd make the cut, wouldn't they? Jesus says to these self-confident people, let me set you straight about the kingdom. The great heroes of your history are in there all right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets. But look who else is going to be there. Verse 29. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. Jesus says to these men and women, make sure you have the right understanding of what counts with God. It's not where you were born. It's not how much you've heard and been taught. What counts with God is coming to Jesus. Acknowledging that your sin makes you a helpless, undeserving outcast. Not worthy to enter the kingdom. Once you've arrived at that point, you're ready to trust in God's Son as your only hope. There's no doubt the Jewish people had great privileges. God had revealed himself and his will to them in the Old Testament law through the prophets. But many of them would spend eternity in the wasteland, outside the kingdom, away from God's presence. And today, too, it's possible to have great privileges and yet miss out in the kingdom. Some of us here today have lived around the good news for years, most of our life. We've heard it presented from just about every angle there is. We're like these people who ate and drank with Jesus. We know plenty about him, but he's not our king. And so we need to hear Jesus' challenge. 
The door to the kingdom is not only narrow, it will soon be shut. And outside in the wasteland, there will only be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Alongside this challenge, there is hope. There's hope for those who have been underprivileged. Those who have grown up with no exposure to the good news. That doesn't count against you with God. The door of the kingdom is open for you if you'll come God's way. In the context of everyone in this room, you may be among the last Jesus talks about in verse 30. The last to hear about Jesus. The last to find the right page when we have a Bible reading. The last to figure out what the songs are talking about. You might think of yourself as the last person God would be interested in. But the door of the kingdom is open for you. How is all this possible? How can the door of the kingdom be open at all? How can sinners like you and me find a welcome at the king's feast? If we have any sense of how holy God is, if we have any inkling of his majesty, then we must also sense our unworthiness. In our hearts, we're like the bent-over woman in the synagogue. Our hearts are bent out of shape. We don't love our creator like we should. We have hard hearts, proud hearts. So how can the door of the kingdom be open at all to us? How can we come under the shelter of the king? The final verses of our passage point us to the answer. Verses 31 to 35 show us the cost of the kingdom and the tragedy of the wasteland. Look down to verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go, tell that fox. I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. It seems that not all the Pharisees were against Jesus. Some of them have heard that King Herod is plotting to kill him and they want him to get out of harm's way. Go somewhere else. Hide. Herod liked his region to be as peaceful as possible. And Jesus is beginning to look like a threat to peace. He's getting the religious leaders agitated and riled up. And in his own words from chapter 12, he has come to bring not peace, but division. It's not too surprising that Herod wants to kill Jesus so things can get back to normal. So these friendly Pharisees may well be wanting to save Jesus. But look again how he responds in verse 32. Go, tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Calling someone a fox can mean a number of different things. Jesus may be pointing to Herod's sly way of trying to destroy him. 
But he goes on to say that his movements are not going to be determined by Herod's plans. No, Jesus' life is not reactive like that. He's following an eternal plan. A plan he and his father laid out before the creation of the world. Herod can try whatever he wants. Jesus knows he cannot die until the time he and his father have planned for him to die. So Jesus will not make any alterations out of fear of Herod. He talks about today, tomorrow, and the third day. That seems to be a way of talking about his plan proceeding in a steady, step-by-step way, rather than referring to three literal days. Rather than worrying about Herod, Jesus will carry on with what he came to do. At the moment, that means teaching and showing men and women what the kingdom is like. It means inviting them to come into the kingdom. But soon, Jesus says, I will reach my goal. We might translate it, I will complete my task. And as verse 33 makes clear, completing his task means dying in Jerusalem. Jesus is going to die, but it will be on the day he and his father have planned, not on the day Herod plans. When Jesus came to earth, his goal was to grow up, go to Jerusalem, and die. That was the task he came to complete. And if we ask why, then we have the answer to our questions from a few minutes ago. How can sinners like you and me find a welcome at the king's feast? How can the door of God's kingdom be open to us? The cost of the open door is Jesus' death. Sinners like you and me don't belong in God's kingdom. But God paid a great price to bring us inside. It was always part of the plan. In eternity past, God dreamed of an eternal kingdom, a new heaven and earth filled with men and women from every nation, a place where God would live with men and women. God wasn't lonely. He didn't need someone to love when he dreamt this dream, but he desired to welcome others into his presence. And when God dreamed of that kingdom, he knew the cost of his dream his son would have to die. God can't ignore sin. If he did, he wouldn't be God. Guilty sinners can't just shuffle into the kingdom of a blindingly holy God. We would explode in a million pieces in his presence. Sin can't live in his presence. Only when our sin has been punished and dealt with, only then can we enter the presence of the king. And God in his love provided a way to both punish and deal with our sin and welcome us into the kingdom. He placed our sin and guilt on Jesus. He punished him instead. Jesus' death is the cost of the kingdom. If Jesus hadn't died, the kingdom would be empty, apart from God himself. But Jesus did die. And so the door of the kingdom is open. And that brings us finally to the tragedy of the wasteland. Verse 34. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The city of Jerusalem represents the whole nation of Israel. And we get a remarkable picture here. Remember, this is Jesus speaking. This is not what someone else says or thinks about God. This is God talking about himself. He compares himself to a mother hen, longing to gather her chicks to her, to bring them under her protection and care. One writer says, in this image, Jesus reveals God's heart. God's constant desire is to intimately care for, nurture, and protect his people. Like a mother hen with her chicks. But there's sorrow in Jesus' voice here. He says to Jerusalem and to all Israel, but you are not willing. My arms are open despite your sin and rebellion and unworthiness. The door of the kingdom is open. The feast is prepared. But you are not willing. You prefer the wasteland. And, Jesus says, you will have the wasteland. Look, verse 35, your house is left to you desolate. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus compared Israel to an unfruitful fig tree. It's in danger of being cut down. Now the comparison is to a house left abandoned and exposed. The nation that could have been at the heart of the kingdom will be left derelict. God's arms are open. The door of the kingdom is open but it won't stay open forever. Those who reject the kingdom will have the wasteland. That was the message to Israel, and it's the message to us today. The price of the kingdom has been paid. The door is open. It's a tragedy when we stay out in the cold. As Jesus so often does, he ends by leaving his sermon open-ended. Look again at the end of verse 35. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When a man or woman recognizes Jesus for who he is, when we worship him as God's anointed one, the Savior who comes with God's authority, then we will see him again. We will take a place in the kingdom. We'll live forever with the king. Maybe some of us have been taking our eyes off the king. We've begun to be enamored with our own traditions, just like the synagogue ruler. Maybe some of us have been doubting the power of God's kingdom. It looks more like a scrawny shrub than a great towering tree to us. Maybe others of us are basing our hope for the future on the wrong things 
our own goodness, our presence in and around church, in church activities. Or maybe you know exactly what Jesus has done. You know exactly what God calls you to do, but you are not willing. Whichever of those groups we might fall into, all of us need to come to the cross this morning. The cross shows us our own weakness, our own desperate need. We look at the cross and we see what we deserve. But the cross also shows us God's eternal power and love. His kingdom cannot fail. Jesus has paid the cost of the kingdom. Because of the cross, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Because of the cross, the kingdom will be full of a great multitude of delivered sinners from every nation, tribe, people, and language. We need to come back to the cross. Let's do that as we sing, Beneath the cross of Jesus, I gladly take my stand.